Mr. Harris, his teacher, was exactly right. History is indeed his story. And that is what the psalmist is saying here, reflecting on the, the history of Israel in ancient times. In verse 1, we have heard with our ears, O God, our fathers have told us what work thou didst in their days. In the times of old, history is about the handiwork of God, what God has done. And here we have the fathers telling the children, in order that the word might be passed on, recorded and perpetuated from generation to generation, what God has done in the past. And yet the history of Israel was a checkered history. On the one hand, God drove out the heathen with his hand and planted the people in verse 2. In verse 5, God helped them push down their enemies. But then we come to verse 9. But thou hast cast off and put us to shame. Goest not forth with our armies. And that's the history of the Christian church too. The tide comes in, the tide goes out. There are times of success, times of triumph, times of revival. There are also times of decline, times of apostasy, times of failure. Times when the enemy seems to be in the ascendancy. But through it all, God's working out his plan. And as the psalmist here reflected upon the history of his people and reflected upon where his people was at this point in time, he had a prayer, arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. And the history of the, the old Irish church illustrates this so clearly. There were times of revival and times of evangelism and times of building, but then there were times of failure and times of apostasy. But through it all, we can pray for our generation. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercy's sake. And Psalm 44 is a good psalm for teaching us the value of studying church history, but it is also a great psalm for encouraging us to pray for our people. Maybe we could have these front lights off, could we? Could somebody just knock those front lights? Thank you. Okay, so we're going to go a little bit further now. We'll think a little bit about Patrick, but we'll also deal with some of the other great characters and movements within the old Irish church, and we'll try and figure out where the old Irish church fitted in and the, the broader scheme of church history of this particular period, because we're at this period of time when the church has moved out of the early Christian era, and the church throughout Europe is entering a time of decline. Yet in that time of decline, God does something very special here in this island. And there are so many examples of the saints and scholars. The old ruins here on, on Devonish, where at one time a simple Christian community labored, where they taught God's word, where they sent out missionaries, where boys came to be educated, and Lochern was filled with many, many little island retreats like this. Uh, here's the example of White Island. These faces carved in the stone. Anybody ever been to White Island? Yeah, you've been to White Island? And um, some people say it's the different stages of the life of Patrick. Nobody really knows what ultimately they represent. And then we have the Lindisfarne Gospels, the book of Kells as well, and these were ancient manuscripts where the scriptures were copied out, but there was also lots of artistry in it. And that was important because many people couldn't read, and the picture was important. 
For example, there you have the, the Kairoi symbol. And the Kairoi symbol first became used by Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor. And it was a little logo, represents the name of Christ. And you go to the British Museum and you can see that logo in uh, dinnerware that Roman Christians would have used in Britain. It's called the Milden Hall Treasure. It was discovered. And it's fascinating because Christians in the Roman world had Christian logos at their dinner table. And you can see Christians saying grace and then talking, fellowshipping, perhaps using that as a witness to their non-Christian neighbors. I find all of that amazing and astonishing. And the Kairoi logo was used in the Lindisfarne Gospels. Yes, and in an age when people couldn't read, the picture said many words. And all of that was very, very important. Important questions. When did Christianity come to Ireland? And was the ancient Christian church in Ireland a Roman Catholic church? And that is a really important question because if the ancient Christian church in Ireland in the 4th century and beyond, if that was under the authority of the Pope of Rome, then that helps Rome to insist on the apostolic authority that Peter was placed at the head of the church and there was an unbroken apostolic session, succession carrying all the way through. But if there was a really strong brand of Christianity, to use that phrase, really strong tradition of Christianity here in Ireland, which did not own the Bishop of Rome as its head, then that tells us something that there wasn't an unbroken apostolic succession that Rome claims. And we must always remember that Patrick's church would have called itself a Catholic church, but it would not have called itself a Roman Catholic church. And there is a clear difference. The word Catholic, the word Christian, synonymous terms, refers to Christ's universal body. What we object is the Roman Catholic church, that Rome must be at the center of the Christian church, and that's poor. And from all of the writings of Patrick and from what we know of this early church, they were not Roman Catholic because they did not submit in these early years to the authority of the papacy. And there's something else really important here. What this old tradition of Christianity teaches us is that the Reformation did not introduce something new. It wasn't something new. Rome says, Luther, Calvin, they brought something new. They didn't. They rediscovered something very old, something that had developed, something that was there, before Roman Catholicism came along and before the Bishop of Rome imposed his authority upon the Christian church. Ireland and the Romans. We know that Rome didn't act, the Roman Empire, now we're going back to think about the Roman Empire, not the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Empire did not politically control Ireland, but the Roman Empire were very familiar with Ireland. In fact, the first person to record Ireland in ancient history was one of the conquerors of Britannia. And of course, Britannia was the Roman name for Britain, or for the parts of Britain that they conquered. Agricola, General Agricola, he looked across the sea. He said, Hibernia means a green land. It's situated between Britain and Spain and is very accessible from the shores of Gaul. That's France. In size, it is smaller than Britain, yet larger than the islands of the Mediterranean. Its soil, climate, manners, and habits of the people are similar to those of Britain, 
Its ports are well known to merchants. And the fact that the ports were well known to merchants, the Roman merchants would have traded with the, the Irish kings, with the Irish chieftains. And many, many Roman coins have been discovered throughout Ireland. Huge quantities of Roman coins. So there was trade going on between the Romans and between the, the, the Irish. And missionaries would have gone with the trade. Where the trade routes were, missionaries went. That was their opportunity to carry the gospel. So from an early time, close to the apostolic age, Christianity was introduced to Ireland. For example, Patrick was converted in Ireland. So there was Christianity in Ireland before Patrick was converted. That, I think, tells the story that Christianity came here pretty early. And in the third century, and that was way before Patrick, we have this story about Cormac, who was the chief king of Ireland. The chief king of Ireland was situated in, in, in Meath, and the Cormac was recorded as turning from paganism to the adoration of God. And that's pretty early. And the, the thing about Cormac was he, he died. Uh, he choked on a fishbone, according to the, 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 the Celtic stories. And when he died choking on a fishbone, he was to be buried at a Christian burial site. He wasn't to be buried pagan burial site. The importance of being buried in a Christian site was that that was a site where people were buried that believed in resurrection. The, 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 the Druids were very displeased and they persuaded his family to take him across the Boyne and bury him in the pagan site. But the river was swelled so enormously that the boat was forced back and so they had to bury him in the Christian site. That's a very interesting story about Cormac. Early in the 5th century, the Irish are recorded as believing in Christ. But yet there was so much paganism, so much witchcraft. The veneration of the holy wells. Ireland's full of these holy wells. And the Roman Catholic Church never liked the holy wells. Uh, they despised them and they tried to tell the people to stay away from them. But to this very day in Ireland, that old paganism lingers with the Roman Catholic people where they will go to the holy wells or where they will fill the little jars full of water and bring them back for healing. We have one quite close to us in the Clocker Valley, a place called St. Patrick's Chair and Well where the water comes up from a rock and it's, it's, quite, it's quite a bizarre place really and you can understand why people would have felt there was some kind of magic or something of supernatural importance but of course of course there isn't and it's all just superstition. So all of this superstition it argued for the need for a missionary to bring God's word to evangelize the Irish. So the first great missionary was this man, Patrick, whom we have already been thinking about. Now, I refer to the book of Armagh. It is dated 807 AD. And immediately we have a problem here because that's 400 years after Patrick. 400 years, an extraordinarily long period of time. And to have a book that is based on the life of someone or records details of the life of someone who exists 400 years before that, that book was written. Well, there's a lot could be missed in the intervening time. And I think that's the first thing. Yes, there are details in the book of Armagh. Can we be absolutely sure of every detail? No, we can't. And what does it contain? A copy of the New Testament. That's good to know. 
Bible people. A letter of, from Patrick to Christians in uh, Wales. He wrote to a, French, a Welsh prince, actually, to urge him to show tolerance to Christians. Um, shows you Patrick's status in the British Isles. It contains confession, and it contains other biographical material. So everything we know about Patrick is bound up in this book. It didn't actually fully come to light until the early 1700s. It was kept by one family, written probably in Armagh itself, but kept by one family for ever so long. It was passed on to another family. Eventually, the Archbishop of Armagh got it, and he sold it to Trinity College in the 19th century. And that's the history of the book of Armagh. <coughs> Patrick said himself, My name is Patrick. I am a sinner, a simple country person, and the least of all believers. I am looked down upon by many. My father was Culporteus. He was a deacon. His father was Pontitus, a priest who lived at Benarvan, uh, Tabernier. His home was near there, and that is where I was taken prisoner. I was about 16 at that time. So as a 16-year-old boy, he became a slave. But while he was a slave under the authority of a man called Malchus, who by all accounts was actually quite cruel, towards him. It was at that time he was converted and after six years he escaped and he made it home again. He was reunited with his family. Some say Scotland, some say Wales. Some even say he was reunited with his family in France because after the whole escapade of losing his family, his family got away from the area completely. We don't know the full story but he did become reunited with his family and it was then that he got this call to come to Ireland and he had this dream and he saw a man called Victorious and this man Victorious brought him the voice of the Irish and the voice of the Irish were saying to him in this dream we entreat thee holy youth to come and walk henceforth among us it was like a Macedonian call to go to the Irish the people that had enslaved him and bring God's word to them it was a true and remarkable and wonderful act of reconciliation. And so he devoted his whole life to preaching, to establishing churches throughout this island. Now, the book of Armagh does piece together some aspects of his travels and of his journeys throughout Ireland. For example, he came ashore the Skerries, a beach in, down, down, down in southern Ireland, and that would certainly correspond with him coming from Wales or even up from France. Allegedly, he established his first church at Saul. And he went back to his old slave, Master Malchus, who was terrified whenever this boy whom he had treated so cruelly came. Something that the old Irish missionaries always did. Nowadays, whenever a missionary goes to evangelize, well, we often say you go to where the people are. Go to the city, go to the place where it's strong with people. That's a general pattern that is often discussed in terms of missionary work. In those days, you went to the king. You went to the main men. You went to the people of profound influence. Because if you could capture their hearts, then you could make inroads upon the whole nation. And so the book of Armagh records that he went to the king of Meath. And the king of Meath was the leading and most dominant king in Ireland was also a, also a center of pagan worship. 
Now, whenever you see all the old ruins of an ancient time, whether it is at Devonish or wherever it is, you see those old ruins. And these ruins come several centuries after Patrick because in the days of Patrick, nothing exists that was built at that time. In fact, most of the dwellings were probably wood. And so there was this extensive city complex at Tara, but it would have been all wooden dwellings. And so all you have here is this this mound today, but it was a center of pagan worship and came to Tara. Now, the story of Patrick at Tara is a fascinating story. And again, it's recorded in the book of Armagh. The book of Armagh records it was Easter time and Patrick lit a light out in the darkness. And the king saw this light shining. But the pagans also had a celebration at Easter. And in their celebration too, they too lit a light. But only the king's light was to be lit. But Patrick had his lit. His light lit for Christ, for the resurrection. And the king was very angry. And he brought Patrick in. And his magicians, sorcerers, druids confronted him. But in the confrontation, while the king wasn't converted, the king showed respect for what Patrick was teaching. And that opened the way up for Patrick to go to all of Ireland. But let's just think about what Ireland looked like at this particular time. You know, we talk about a united Ireland, or nationalists do, Republicans too. There probably was never a united Ireland in history until the English came and made it one island united under the English crown. Because Ireland was a very disjointed place. You see some names that you recognize. Munster. Leinster, Kingdom of Meath was at the heart, it was the leading king. And actually all of these other kings would have paid a tribute to the King of Meath. Uh, the Anneals governed most of Ulster right up until the flight of the Earls. That was a really long time. Um, the Iliad, I find that very interesting. That was a kingdom that became known as the Dalriada that was on both sides of the Irish Sea. And there was lots of interaction going on between Scotland and Ireland at that time. So that just gives you a little snapshot of Ireland and what Ireland looked like in these ancient times. Now, Patrick said, and I, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, I am greatly a debtor to God who has vouchsafed me such great grace that many people by my means should be born again to God. And the clergy should be ordained everywhere for them. It tells you his program of mission. So he preached. People surrendered to the gospel. People were born again. And then he ordained clergy everywhere. In order that those people might be fed the word of God. So he established Christian communities. He established Christian uh, churches wherever he, he went. And so by the time he died, he had left a whole network of churches from one end of Ireland to the other. And Ireland, fairly big. You have to walk by foot from one end to the other. It was one long, hard life to do what he did and to achieve what he eventually achieved. Crookpatrick, one of the famous pilgrimage sites, Roman Catholics. 
Um, it is the, the place where it is said that he gathered all of the snakes of Ireland, drove them into the sea, and that's why Crookpapper became so famous. Now, of course, I don't believe all of that for one minute, but was the snake worshipped in Ireland? Did he drive out the worship of the snake? The snake was actually endemic in virtually every pagan culture. Don't know about that. You can hang that one in your mind. Perhaps the whole story about the snake has something deeper in it than what we fully realize. That, of course, is his burial. A Catholic saint or an early Protestant, little tongue-in-cheek. It's not right for anyone, really, to claim it. He, he wasn't a Protestant the Protestants who later came. Uh, but his teaching was certainly closer to what Protestantism was than what Roman Catholicism eventually became. He never mentioned the Pope. He never, doesn't speak of Mary. Confession wasn't practiced. Purgatory was unknown. His father was married, and yet he was a priest at the same time. In doctrine, he was Trinitarian, Christ-exalting. He believed in the new birth. He was evangelical. He emphasized the importance of the scriptures and church government. He ordained one bishop per church. That's what it appears to be when you look at the book of Armagh. And that, of course, will correspond more to Presbyterianism than it does to Episcopalianism. So all of that is very interesting. Now, after Patrick, what then? And after Patrick is as important and maybe more important than what took place during Patrick's lifetime. And let me introduce you to this man called Adman. Very interesting for several reasons. While he would have come along probably 200 years after Patrick, he was the leader of the Christian settlement at Iona. And what is really interesting with this man, Adman, is that he was a great scholar and a writer, and he left a legacy. I'll talk about that legacy now in a moment. But what Adman did do was this. He tried to bring in the authority of the Bishop of Rome to the church settlement at Iona in Scotland. And the people of Iona put him out. They said, we're not accepting what you're saying. It's false. So it just shows you, a couple of years after, a couple hundred years after Patrick, there was this tension between the authority of the Bishop of Rome and this Celtic church. But what Adman did do, which was really good, was this. A life of Columba within a hundred years of the death of the latter. So a hundred years after the great mission Angelus Columba died, Adman wrote this biography. That's better than the book of Armagh. The book of Armagh, 400 years distant between Patrick and that book. The life of Columba within a century. So we can be a lot more sure of the facts about Columba than we certainly can where Patrick is concerned. What about Adman, a scholar? How, how great a scholar was he? Now, he, he wrote a book on the holy places of Palestine. And what is fascinating about this book is this. You know, we're not to think of these people as semi-literate, you know, not great scholars, not knowing what was going on in the world around them. There was a visiting cleric from Italy and he was on a voyage and a ship got wrecked off the coast of Iona and it was winter so he had no option but to stay in Iona 
with the Christian settlement there. And Adman and him discussed, perhaps he was the one that sort of gave him influences about the power of the Vicar of Rome, I don't know. Two that they discussed. And Adman wrote, and this man had been, and Adman then wrote a book on this little island off the coast of Scotland about the places of the Holy Land, based on what this visiting Italian cleric had told him. These people were very familiar with what was going on in the world around them. I find that really, really interesting. So now we come to the life of Columba. Life of Columba is really important. Life of Columba really set a ball in motion that would lead to Scotland being one United Nation. He had a political as well as a faith importance. What can we say about Columba and Iona? Well, he was educated at Meville, Newtonards. Those of you familiar with Newtonards, Meville Road. He established, it is said, 300 churches in Ireland, although one scholar says that the, the old Celtic writers they weren't always scientific in the way they said things. You'd find name, numbers come up a lot, 300, 3,000, you know, 30, and, you know, difficult to know just what that means, but he established a lot of churches in Ireland. Maybe that was just their way of saying it. He, he did a great work. We don't know, but he did an extensive work in Ireland. And then he got into a bit of trouble with a man called Finian. Finian was a scribe, and Columbus said, let me borrow your Psalter. And he copied the Psalter out. Then he passed off the copy that he had made of Finian's Psalter as his own work. And Finian was very annoyed because he said, you've basically broken my copyright. Because that was how these scribes made money. They copied their books and then they sold them. They passed them on. And so Columbo was making money out of something that somebody else had transcribed. It all got very, very nasty. And eventually there was a, a ruling made by the king of Meath against Columba. Love this phrase. To every cow belongs its calf, so to every book belongs its copy. But the men of Ulster who were very much behind, especially the men of Donegal, where Columba was from, they were uh, very much behind Columba and very aggrieved with the ruling of the southern king. And so there was a war between Ulster and some of the southern kings. And lots of people died. Ulster won the battle. But Columba, as a result, was exiled because he had been involved as a man of God in the shedding of blood. And so he was sent away. And so he took a trip. He took a trip from northern Donegal and he went straight north. And he sailed on a thing called a weary, just a little boat. And probably they had to row it. Iona was up there, so up, up there. Kingdom of Dalriada. i tell you the interesting thing about this Kingdom of Dalriada. Uh, these, these, these were the Scots. Although that says Scotland, these, these, the Picts and the Scots were two different people. They were always going to war with each other. Dalriada occupied part of Ulster as well as part of Scotland. They, 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 they were the Scots. So the Irish and the Scots were much the same thing in that part of the world. And actually, the King of Dalriada paid a tribute to the King of Meath. So there was a, a comings together, a very close comings together between these two parts of the world, which was why Columba went to the island of Iona, which is just off the coast of Dalriada, and the king of Dalriada gave him this island. And so he established a little Christian community there. Now, whenever you established a little Christian community, there was himself, probably his 12 followers, 
They would have built their buildings, somewhere to live, somewhere to worship, somewhere to study. But they lived, they had to eat. So they learned to farm. They kept a few animals. And the whole idea was, they were showing the whole of society around about, this is a Christian society, this is a Christian community. We worship together, we pray to God together, we learn God's word together, we eat together, we farm together, we work together, we're industrious, we're not lazy. So they would show all the different aspects of the Christian life to the world around about, as we too should be doing in our day and generation, albeit a different context. And then from this little isle of Iona, they sent God's word out into all of Scotland. Iona became a place of faith, education, culture, art, and agriculture. And actually, the influence of Iona would continue for centuries. That little island did such an amazing work for God. So what Columba did was he reached into the Pict kingdom. The Picts were known as a particularly savage people. It's the it's probably a bit of a caricature, but the Romans couldn't conquer them. They were, the, they were really uh, a thorn in the flesh of the Romans. They could never conquer Scotland because of the, the warlike tendencies of the Picts. But Columba took the gospel in amongst these people. King Brood himself of, of the land of the Picts was converted to Christ. The king of Dalriada too was converted to Christ. And suddenly you had these two powerful kingdoms in Scotland united with one faith. And Wiley, in his history of the Scottish nation says this was at a pivotal moment in the forming of modern Scotland and Christianity was at the heart of it and the work of Columba was so important in the forming of Scotland and King Charles will be crowned this year he will be crowned on the stone of scone stone of scone is said to be the stone of destiny and the first recorded use of a stone that was known as the stone of destiny in the history of Britain was when Columba appointed Aidan king of Dalriada and crowned him king. And people say, historians say, you can trace the line of the kings and queens of Britain all the way back through the Stuarts to Aidan king of Dalriada. History's a continuing story. It's fascinating. He died 597 AD. I've described his death earlier after he read and wrote down Psalm 34, verse 10. And so Columba, um, he lived till he was in his 70s. Lived for over 30 years in Scotland. So he did quite a work for God. Uh, Columba did. Actually, it is said whenever he, he went to King Brood, went to his palace, King Brood shut the gates, didn't want this Christian missionary coming. And sometimes the Celtic writers were fond of sort of artistic embellishments. They says, God caused the gates to burst open. And then he walked in. But probably that was a poetic way of saying the chains of the king's heart were broken down. That's what the gospel is all about. Breaking down the chains of sin that bind. Now, let's come to the Celtic church and a passion for missions. Because... These people, as we have said, uh, Dermot McCulloch, who is one of the, the more modern historians, who looks at the history of Christianity, looks at the history of the Reformation. I don't think he's a believer, judging from some of the things that he said, but he certainly writes very sympathetically on, about the Protestant Reformation. 
uh, and he has written the history of Christianity. But he, he says that the Irish, he said the Irish were a, a roving, restless people, always on the move. And there's something about that. And I just talked to somebody recently who was telling me that he met a scholar who has taken time to look at these old Irish missionaries. He said the Irish were unique in that not only did they travel, but wherever they went, they made a profound difference. And the life of Columbanus shows that to be true. Now, we have the writings of Columbanus. So, Patrick, 400 years later, the Armagh turns up. Columba, uh, Columba or Columkill, as he's known in the Irish, 100 years later, Adman's biography turns up. That's still 100 years. Long time, 100 years. But we have the actual writings of Columbanus. We have his biography written by a contemporary, and we have a general history of the age in which he lived. We can be very sure of the life of Columbanus, and I tell you, he was quite a character. Now, the book of Daily Penances, what's that all about? That sounds very Romish to us, doesn't it? Of course, you must think of penance in terms of the origin of the word. You know, we should have penitent hearts. Never we know our sin, we penitent hearts before God. The whole idea of earning your forgiveness through some outward act of penance in order to get that forgiveness, that's wrong. That's foreign to scriptures. But the idea of humbling yourself before God, and that is what his daily penances were all about. In fact, Dermot McCulloch, he says this about the Irish, that they would have kept uh, a little book of penance, your own little personal book. They, they felt their sin. They were this right before God. It was their way of reminding them about their sin. I find that a fascinating idea. But then he goes on to say that later influenced the Roman church to develop their whole system of penance. And of course, errors creep in by stealth. But the idea of humbling yourself before God, absolutely nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Monastic rules. These Christian communities that these men were part of, they are called monasteries. Sometimes they're called monks. They certainly were not monasteries. Orders that developed out of Roman Catholicism, like the Benedictines, the Augustinians, the Franciscans, so on and so forth. Something that became really, really corrupt. All that had not happened at that particular time in history. Now, born in 543 A.D., um, educated one of Loch Ern's many schools. His education continued at Bangor Abbey. Um, what would he have learned there? He learned theology, learned Hebrew, learned Greek, learned Latin, learned classic Greek literature. Got quite an education here in Ireland. In fact, Ireland was the place where the British came, was the place where the Europeans came. If you wanted to learn and study, you came to the land of saints and scholars. That was the stock that Ireland had in Europe at that particular time. And he knew about the life of Columba and what he did in Scotland. And therefore, he had this urge to go further, to go into Europe. And he had heard about France. He had heard about the corruption in France. He had heard about a French king, rebellious son and wife. He had heard about a bishop who burned a man to seize the estate he coveted. He learned about the church and how corrupt the church had become. And the church was becoming increasingly corrupt in the continent. And so... He had a vision to go there and to make a difference for God. He could speak Latin. Actually, the old Celtic language would take him anywhere in Europe. 
it just pause for a minute, the word Celtic. Um, the British were Celtic people before the Romans came. All of these islands were Celtic, all of them. And when the Anglo-Saxons came, they were Germans. The English people, their story begins in Germany, not in Britain. The original British people were the Celts. That old Celtic language could take them anywhere in Europe. Even in parts of England you still have it. Cornish dialect, for example. He believed the gospel could transform society. But when he set for France, he would never come back to Ireland again. That was it. It was a one-way ticket. Now the French flocked to hear the Irish preacher. And he, he looked a little bit odd because he had his Celtic tonsure. You know what the, the tonsure is the hairstyle that, that the monks would have had. So the, the Roman monk has the, the head shaved in the middle. And the, the Irish monk apparently had the, the, heads, the hair sliced off just there. There's different hairstyles. You might smile at all of that. It was a huge area of difference because he looked totally different from the, the other people who were subject to the Bishop of Rome, for example. So he stood out amongst the crowd and he celebrated Easter at a different time. The old Celtic church celebrated Easter at a different time from the Roman church. And all of these differences matter a lot at this time. And because he was so different, they sent him back to Ireland. When he got on the boat to go back to Ireland, the captain took him. There was a storm and the captain felt, I have a holy man of God here. It's not good to go against God. So he set him back in Europe. But he didn't stay in France. He went on to Switzerland. He broke boilers that were brewing beer and other spirits. He, he burned temples. He smashed idols. He was a very kind of a, a wild sort of character. Like an old free Presbyterian. He journeyed on into northern Italy, crossing the Alps. And when he got to Italy, eventually he was called home to be with the Lord. His journey was a very impressive one. But I love this story here because he wrote to Pope Gregory, known as Pope Gregory the Great. I was talking to a brother man one day and I had my clerical collar on. I knew the look of him, I wasn't pleased. So I said, you know, we all have a bit of popery in us and you've got it too. Because we all use the calendar of Pope Gregory the Great. Um, and Colin Banis wrote to the Pope denouncing the manner in which the Pope celebrated Easter. He called it a dark paschal system. And he compared the Pope to, to a dead lion. And in that letter, you know what he called himself? A living dog. He said, I'd rather be a living dog than a dead lion. Now, that highlights not only his fiery spirit, but it highlights the fact that he was not subject to the Bishop of Rome and refused to be subject to the Bishop of Rome. And it highlights that this was a Christian tradition that was very, very different from the Roman tradition that did not accept the apostolic authority that the Pope claimed. And that is significant. And if you're ever talking to a Roman Catholic person that's all into their history, and you know these are things to show them because I think they are really, really important facts. Let me talk to you about somebody else now. We've got a few minutes left. Aidan of Lindisfarne. Aidan of Lindisfarne saved Christianity in England. Transformed Christianity in England. Revived Christianity in England. And he established a site a little bit like Iona off the coast of Northumbria. And at this particular time, Gregory the Great comes up. Pope Gregory the Great had sent a man called Augustine. The Kent Canterbury was established 
as a center of Christianity, but it was Roman Christianity. And so you have this Roman version of Christianity sweeping up from the south of England. But in the north, you have this Celtic version of Christianity who didn't accept the power of the Pope. And the Pope was absolutely insistent. In fact, I said that Gregory the Great was probably the first of the, the popes in the modern sense. Certainly he wanted to make the papacy... Uh, preeminent amongst all Christians. That, that was his aim. That, that was his ambition. And, but Augustine's mission wasn't, all success, wasn't really successful by all accounts. Um, loads of people were baptized, but they kept their paganism. And of course, that was what was wrong with the Christian church at that time. That's why it became the Roman Catholic Church. People were baptized into Christianity, but they kept their paganism, and all the pagan practices came in. And that's where you got the Mariolatry and all that sort of stuff. And so you had this version of Christianity coming into England at this time. But something happened in Bangor in North Wales after Augustine came. An army of Anglo-Saxons slaughtered a whole company of Celtic Christians at Bangor in North Wales. There was a very large place there where men worked together, studied together, prayed together, Christian community. It said there was 3,000 there. And when these soldiers came to slaughter these Christians, they had no weapons, they had no swords. A thousand of them knelt in prayer and they were cut down on the spot. There's eyewitness accounts. And so Christianity in England, true apostolic Christianity, suffering enormously. But something happened in Northumbria. Now Northumbria is one of the major kingdoms of what we today call England. England was divided amongst all these Anglo-Saxon kings. You can see Northumbria is different from Northumberland today. It reached up into Scotland, reached down into York, into what we call Yorkshire, reached right across to the Irish Sea. So it was a pretty significant area and there was a young prince there called Oswald who had a falling out and he traveled over to the land of the Scots he met Christians and he was converted to Christianity and he asked these Christians will you send a preacher to us and so they did send a preacher they sent this man called Aidan who established this Christian community in the island of Lindisfarne and through his ministry it is said that all England from the Thames to the Forth and the Clyde was enlightened with the knowledge of the Saviour. God did a dramatic work. And that's where the Lindisfarne Gospels, those beautiful books, that's where they come from, from that particular tradition. So you have Ireland, the land of saints and scholars, you have the Irish going to Iona of Scotland, and you have the Irish also going for Aidan was Irish. You have him travelling right across to Northumbria, uh, and doing, doing, doing a work for God. And you have Columbanus going into Europe. These people are going everywhere on a mission, winning souls, bringing and teaching the word of the living God. But the darkness came. So where did it all go wrong? Well, really, downgrade doesn't take place in a moment of time. It doesn't take place in one year. You can never really look at history in that way and say, here's the truth. 
Here's the apostasy. Apostasy comes in gradually. It did come in in England. The Whitby Conference in 664 was pretty decisive where the, the, the Celtic church in that part of the world, that was pretty soon after Aden, said they were going to be subject to the Bishop of Rome. But the Celtic church didn't become fully apostate at that time either. It took place at Whitby Abbey. Have you ever been Whitby in Yorkshire? See the Abbey up on the hill above the harbour? That's where all that took place. Very famous event. Uh, the Archbishop of York was a man imposed by the papacy. Uh, Wilfred, I think his name was. He said the Pope was the gatekeeper. He has the keys. Therefore, we're to be subject to him. One of the famous quotes from that period of history. Yet at the same time, there were good people. Augustine of Ireland, totally different character, wrote a book on the wonders of Scripture, holding the same doctrine and the kind of inspiration as the later Protestants. Rome hadn't yet fully gained total supremacy. The Vikings, they came. There's a whole period of the Vikings coming. And the Vikings did something very interesting. You see, wherever they came, they settled. So they came to pillage, to rob, do all sorts of horrible things. Then they settled down. They became part of the local community. And then they claimed to be Christians in Ireland. And the Archbishop of Dublin was put into place in Viking Ireland. Dublin was run by the Vikings at that particular time. Then later in history, the Normans, they came. And when the Normans came post 1066, one of their ambitions was to unify the churches of England, Ireland, and Wales. And there was a man called Malachi, an Irish revere, St. Malachi. We've heard the name, St. Malachi. And in 1140 AD, Malachi knelt before Pope Innocent III. He surrendered Ireland in exchange for a papal legion. So to become a prince of the church, he surrendered Ireland to Rome. It was all for power, all for money. But even then, that was by no means the end of the story because the history says that Ireland was the last place in Europe to subject itself to the papacy and there was extreme rebellions against the power of the papacy in Ireland and uh, there's examples of synods of the Roman church being totally ignored by the people but then 1171 Henry landed at Waterford he was sent by the Pope and he took total control of Ireland Whenever that happened, that's why I said it all went wrong when the English came. It quite literally did. The Pope was to receive one penny per year from every household in Ireland, known as Peter's penny. Peter's penny. In other words, Henry became the king of Ireland as long as he paid his taxes to the papacy. And you can see where the papacy had become in those days. A political movement obsessed with power, money, and wealth selling the souls of the people. And so, Ireland ascended into the Dark Ages. And really, history becomes very quiet then. Not much happens over the falling centuries until the Protestant Reformation and the Ulster Scots who would come back here to do an amazing work. That's me finished.